Father, we thank you that once again, we get to gather to sing of the victory of your son, Jesus Christ, of his perfect life, death, and resurrection, that he stood in our place and he endured the punishment that we deserve because of sin so that we could call on his name in faith, turn from our sins and repentance and receive from you a free gift of salvation. Father, thank you that the victory has been won through Jesus. We thank you that he shares that victory with us today. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your church to declare these things, to trumpet the good news of the gospel once again. And Father, today we thank you especially for the mothers who are here. Father, we praise you and we rejoice for mothers who have raised us to know, love, and follow you. I thank you for every mother in this room who, in spite of daily challenges and trials and uncertainties, is doing everything within her strength to lead her children to you. So Father, thank you for mothers. I thank you for my mom. I thank you for my grandmothers who loved me and prayed for me long before I was born. who discipled me in truth, who led me to know you. Thank you for my wife who loves our boys so well and for the gift that she is to me and to our family and to this congregation. And Lord, I pray now, particularly for those for whom today is hard. I pray for those who may be grieving Mother's Day without their mom for the first time. I pray for those whose relationships with their mothers are broken and estranged. Father, I lift up the woman in this room who desperately desires to be a mother and is waiting and who has perhaps endured loss and suffering and heartache. Your word promises that you are near to the brokenhearted You save the crushed in spirit. And so, Lord, for those who are struggling through today, I ask you be near to them. Help us as brothers and sisters in Christ to be sensitive to those realities. And so, Father, as I know my mother long prayed for me and as my grandmother's long prayed for me, we ask now, as we open your word this morning, that we would be sanctified in truth because your word is truth. So anchor our hearts to it today that we can live and we can love as you've called us to live and love. Be glorified in our time together now. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can be seated. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I will invite you to turn in your Bible to the page of Jude. If your Bible is like mine, Uh, Hopefully you got some good Bible drill practice last week locating the short letter of Jude. If you're not familiar, uh, no shame using your table of contents or uh, one easy way to do this as well, just go to the end of your Bible, find the book of Revelation and then go find the letter of Jude, which is right before it. It might be stuck to the page of 3 John. Uh, It is a short letter, but it is not insignificant. Uh, Last week as we opened up this letter, I mentioned that Jude is is maybe one of the most uh, neglected books in the Bible 
partly because it is so short, partly because it does butt up against Revelation and Revelation tends to get the most attention. But also as we're gonna see this morning is because there's just a lot of complexities in the book of Jude that many believers for centuries have not really known what to do with. And so we're gonna try to work through those things together this morning. Uh, My junior year when I was a student up at Liberty University in uh, Virginia, um, I had a class that was infamous uh, among Liberty students is Bible 350. And what made Bible 350 such an infamous class is that you only had one project for the entire semester. And that project was to write a commentary on a book of the Bible. And uh, so the professor, the very first day of class, would assign a different New Testament book. And then you had to spend the whole semester writing your own commentary on that book of the Bible. And so there's some tension going into that class on day one, you know, because previous classes had gotten the book of 1 John, which was like five chapters long, or had gotten 1 or 2 Peter, which are a little bit longer, but he announces on day one, our class's project was going to be a commentary on the book of Jude. And in my mind, I said, that's a win because Jude is really, really short. And I, I was just convinced. I was like, man, we're the class that's, that's going to get off scot-free. We're the class that's getting it easy because we were handed one of the shortest books in the Bible. But I learned one semester and 55 pages later uh, that it was not an insignificant book of the Bible. So, so Jude is, is oftentimes overlooked because of its brevity. It's overlooked sometimes because of where it is located in Scripture against the book of Revelation. But also Jude is oftentimes ignored because it can be a really, really challenging letter. Last week we saw uh, that the book of Jude, you'd be hard-pressed to find a book in the, New, in, in the Bible, for that matter, uh, that, uh, that is more loaded with the tensions of both truth and grace. So last week we saw our responsibility as followers of Christ to be people who contend for the faith. And that's fighting language. Those are fighting words that Jude uses. We should be people who contend for the faith. We fight for the truth of the gospel. We fight for sound doctrine. We contend for the faith that was once for all passed down to the saints. But we also emphasized last week that as we contend, we should not be contentious. We fight for what's true. We fight for what's right. We fight for what's good. But the same book that calls us to contend for the faith, to fight for truth, we'll see next week also tells us on the other side, but have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who have questions. Have mercy on those who are struggling with their faith. And so, so scripture calls us to hold both of these things in tension. Yes, we contend for what's good and what's right and what's true, but Jude also calls us to have mercy on those who are struggling to understand the truth. But Jude doesn't just create a tension for the application of how we live as followers of Jesus. As we're gonna see this morning, Jude creates a bit of a tension about who Jesus is himself. You know, we all love to think of Jesus. He is our loving savior. His name, Jesus, means the Lord saves. It's what his name means. It's what he does. But what we see through the letter of Jude is that Jesus is not just our savior. Jesus is also our judge. And so in our our time together this morning, that's what we're gonna see in Jude 5 through 16. Jesus is the savior of sinners who also carries out judgment against sin. Again, Jude, Jude feels kind of like a roller coaster letter. Like we, we saw last week, if you are in Jesus Christ, it means you are called. It means you are beloved. It means that you are kept. And then we'll see next week at the end of Jude's letter, one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of the Bible where he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. 
So Jude's book starts out and it ends with a promise. If you are in Christ, he will keep you. And if you are in Christ, he's going to keep you until the day that you see him face to face. And we need that bookend at the beginning and the end because of what we see today. There are a lot of challenges in verses five through 16. And this is why at both ends of this letter, we need the reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ will keep us if we belong to him. So from Jude, uh, there's only one chapter, Jude 1, uh, verses 5 through 7. Let's read those three verses as we begin. Jude writes, now I want to remind you. Everybody say remind. It's an important word for us here. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, everybody say Jesus, because this is also very important to see his name right here. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which are likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is the savior of sinners, but Jesus is also the one who pronounces judgment against sin. So what we see first from Jude 5 through 7 is that the same Jesus who judged in the past is the same Jesus who judges today. The same Jesus who judged in the past is the same Jesus who judges today. He has not changed. Verse five, Jude writes, now I want to remind you Now, sometimes as followers of Christ, this is what we need more than anything else. We need reminders of things. We live in this information age, so you and I can quickly glean new insights from books and from podcasts and documentaries. You know, we got a lot of overnight geniuses in our culture today, right? Because we got all this information available to us. And this can be really helpful to us as followers of Christ because you and I have the benefit. We are a generation of Christians. We have more, we have more resources available to us to help us understand the Bible than any other generation of Christians that's ever walked the face of the earth. And so this can be really, really good for us is if you've got questions or there's something that's challenging to understand, man, there's just a litany of resources that are available to you, many of them for free, that they can help us understand the challenging parts of the Bible. But when we are constantly on the hunt for something new, that makes us prone to a couple of potential errors. One potential error is in our constant quest for something new, we might go looking for things in scripture that aren't actually there. And, and, and that leads to a second potential error is that as we go looking for things that aren't actually there and imposing our own interpretations on the Bible, a second error is that we might miss the things in scripture that are obviously there. And so we can be guilty of, of missing the forest for the trees. And so in Jude's case, he was writing to those who didn't really need to learn something new. What they needed was to be reminded about some truths that they had apparently forgotten. There was a time, Jude says, when they knew about God's coming judgment, but for one reason or another, that has apparently now slipped off of their radar. So he's writing to remind them about Jesus, who is the judge. Verse five, he says, I wanna remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, I'm just gonna emphasize that, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
Now, if you're not familiar, you know, the book of Exodus tells the story of, of God's people being freed from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And this has been depicted in, in a lot of movies. And if you're Disney generation, this was, this was Prince of Egypt growing up. Or if you're older generation, it's you know, Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner. It's a famous story. And what the story tells us is that God's people were in the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And so he sends Moses to go speak to Pharaoh. And the message to Pharaoh was what? Let my people go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart against this. And so the Lord sends plagues on the nation of Egypt. The final plague was the death of the firstborn son. And so finally Pharaoh relents and he lets them go. But as God's people flee into the wilderness, as they get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army begin to pursue them. And so as the army's pursuing them, the Lord miraculously parts the Red Sea and God's people walk across on dry land. And then as Pharaoh's chariots try to pursue, the Lord takes that same Red Sea and crashes it down upon them. And there's a really interesting detail here in the book of Jude. Jude says that it was Jesus who did that. You just pause for a second. You're like, okay, I'm pretty familiar with the Exodus story. I've heard this a lot of times. Like I go back to the book of Exodus. I don't remember seeing the name of Jesus there. And so that can baffle us a little bit, but this isn't quite as odd as you might think. If you look at the whole of scripture, the apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, shows that he saw Christ as present with, with Israel in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter three, when God reveals himself to Moses, what does he tell Moses that his name is? I am. And then in John chapter eight, Jesus uses that title in reference to himself. He tells those listening, before Abraham was, I am. And church, we have to remember Jesus Christ is a member of the Godhead. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. You know, many of us, I fear, we read the Bible through these really faulty lenses. We read the Old Testament through this lens of, of angry, vengeful father. And then we read the New Testament through this lens of loving, gracious son, like the father and the son are somehow in competition with one another. But the doctrine of the Trinity, we just sang this earlier. Doctrine of Trinity tells us there's one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're distinct. The Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father, and yet the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And, and so, so we, we cannot read the Bible through these lenses of angry Father, loving Son, because Jesus is one with the Father. Our God is three and our God is one. That's the mystery of who God is. That's the mystery of the Trinity, which means for us, church, whenever we see the Lord executing judgment in the Old Testament, the son was not standing there in protest against the father. And in fact, what Jude reveals for us here is that it was Jesus himself who was delivering God's people and it was Jesus who was destroying God's enemies. So yes, Jesus is savior. That's what his name means. It's who he is. It's what he does. But how does he save in the Exodus story? By delivering God's people from their enemies. Church, please, please don't miss this this morning. You will not fully understand what it means that Jesus is your savior if you don't also understand what it means that he is your judge. Drew Dick has a really great book called Yawning at Tigers. And the subtitle of this book is, You Can't Tame God, So Stop Trying. It's just a fantastic read if you're interested. And, and, and this is actually a reflection on Isaiah's vision of the Lord from Isaiah chapter six, but I think it has clear application for this text as well. He's written, we need to see this God of Israel both in his wrath and his infinite mercy. We need to learn a holiness that rejects all compromise with evil 
and. Not or, and. And we need to learn a generosity that saves, that seeks and saves the lost. We need to learn to know God as he is. We need to learn to know God as he is. We need to learn to know God as he is. Not as who we think he is, not as who we feel he is, not as who we wish him to be, but as he actually is. And Jesus is revealed to us in scripture, not just as a savior, but also as a judge. If you recognize that Jesus is savior, but not as judge, what's gonna end up happening is you're gonna have a faith that's very shallow and overly sentimental and superficial. If you only know him in this way, if you accept the Jesus who is loving and gracious and merciful and compassionate, but you don't accept the Jesus who is also holy and righteous and just, who will carry out judgment against sin. If you know the first Jesus, but not the second Jesus, then you're not worshiping the true Jesus, you're worshiping a God you've made in your own image. We have to worship him for who he is, not for who he think he is or who we want him to be. He's both the savior and he's the judge. Now, I'm gonna warn you here, you know, for, for the next uh, about 10, 12 minutes, this gets really, really dense. All right, when I go back to that Jude project, uh, when I was a, a college junior, most of those 55 pages came from what we find in the next eight verses. I mean, honestly, we could spend one week on each of the next eight verses for, for several weeks. And so uh, two things. Number one, I'm just gonna beg you this morning, please be gracious towards me. Uh, not gonna get all the nuances, not gonna get all the details. This is gonna be a very, very quick drive-by. Uh, the second encouragement is join a community group. And community group leaders, I'll just say for this week, may the odds be ever in your favor. As you look at this text together, uh, if there was ever a week to bring a study Bible and a commentary to community group, it's this week, amen? And, and so I'm, I'm gonna do my very best. We're gonna take about 20 minutes uh, looking at things that have confused people for 20 centuries. I'm sure we'll have no questions when this is all said and, uh, and, and done. So broad overview here. All right, so Jude, in, in these few verses, he gives three examples of God's past judgment from the Old Testament that serve as a warning of his future judgment. First example we've already seen. Jesus delivered the people from slavery and he destroyed Egypt. Second example that he gives in verses five through seven is of angels who did not stay in their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Now, this is a reference to Genesis six, one through four. And Jude interprets this passage through Jewish tradition. He refers uh, to a Jewish religious text known as First Enoch. This was a Hebrew religious text. And what Jude says is happening in Genesis six is that there were angels who left their divine position. They crossed the boundary from their divine position. And Genesis six says that they saw that the, the daughters of man were beautiful. And so angels left their divine position to engage in sexual immorality with women. And because of their wickedness, Jude tells us that God has kept them in eternal chains until the final day of judgment when Satan and his demons will be cast into the lake of fire. That's example number two. So we've got the example of, of Jesus destroying God's enemies at the Red Sea. We've got the example of, of angels being bound in chains because they were fallen and rejected what God intended. And then the third example here is of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, uh, throughout scripture, there's over 20 references to Sodom and Gomorrah, and it became all through the Old Testament in particular and into the New Testament, a visceral example of God's judgment. So if you're not familiar, what happens in Genesis 19 is God sends two angels into the city. And the men of this particular city try to gang up against these angels and sexually assault them. 
And so just rampant wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, so what does God do? He rains fire and brimstone on the city. And, and so Sodom was full of sexual perversion of every kind. And that's what gets the most attention. But, you know, but unfortunately, this passage has, has kind of been used as a clobber passage to, to hit those who struggle with sexual sin. And if you look across the whole of the Bible, there was a whole lot more going on in Sodom and Gomorrah than sexual sin. God condemned them for their pride. God condemned them for their arrogance. God condemned them for how hostile they were towards outsiders, which was a very, very big deal in ancient Near Eastern culture. Their wickedness was so great. Their sins across the board were so great that the Lord responded by raining fire and brimstone upon them. God's judgment fell upon them because of their sin. And what Jude shows us here is that Jesus was there for all of it. Jesus was present at the Red Sea. Jesus was present at Sodom and Gomorrah. And we have to understand, church, his nature has not changed. The same Jesus that was part of the judgment then is the same Jesus who's part of the judgment now. Today, judgment still looms against pride. It still looms against arrogance. It still looms against sexual immorality of every kind. These things are no less sinful today than they were then. Nothing has changed. This is what has changed for us. This is the perspective that we do have that people in the Old Testament did not have. What we can see today, what we do know today, is the message of the cross. And what the cross shows us is that Jesus Christ stood in our place and God's wrath against sin was poured out on him. God's wrath against sin was poured out on him. And so the judgment that you and I deserve because of sin is poured out on Jesus. I love this reflection from Tim Keller. He has said, the cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment. Church, it is good news that Jesus is your judge. If you are in Christ, it is good news that Jesus is your judge because as the judge, he has the authority to set both the price and the penalty for sin. And the price that he has set is blood and the penalty, or the penalty for sin is blood, the price is perfection. We can't pay those things on our own and that, that makes him just, he's righteous, he's holy, he's going to uphold his standard, but he's also our savior. And as our savior, the judge then stands in to take our punishment for sin. This is good news. If Jesus is your savior, he's also your judge. The same judge that has the authority to condemn a criminal for life is the same judge that has the authority to tell an orphan child that he now has a new family. And if you are in Jesus Christ, that authority is on your side. He has the authority to condemn sin, but that also means he has the authority to acquit sinners. And if you are in Christ, the ultimate judge, the highest court of appeal has declared that you are innocent and you are righteous and you're free. It is good news that Jesus is your judge. We cannot just accept him as savior. It's good for us to accept him as our judge. He has the authority to destroy, but it also means he has the authority to deliver. And he's made a way for you to be delivered from every form of sin. Verses eight through 13, Jude goes on to say this. He says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, 
For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast and they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So we've seen that the same Jesus who judged in the past is the same Jesus who judges today. Second, we see the same sins he judged in the past are the same sins he judges today. Jesus has not changed. His nature has not changed, which means truth has also not changed. There are not sins that are more acceptable today just because we've progressed two, three, four, five, six thousand years like the nature of, of truth has is, is not changed. And so in, in these six verses, we're given seven or several indicators of false prophets. Verse eight says that they rely on their dreams. They say that they've seen or they've heard things, they've received a vision, they've received a dream that contradicts something that is found in God's word. Now, here is one at times uh, of the most telltale signs of a false prophet. There, there are a few more dangerous things than a person who gets up in front of a group of people and starts out a statement with these words, God told me. Brent, if you're gonna use the language of God told me, whatever you say next had perfectly aligned with what we find here. Because God's not going to tell you anything that's any different than what he has already told us here. He's not gonna give you a revelation personally that contradicts the revelation that has been preserved in his word. There are few more dangerous statements than God told me. There's great danger in saying, thus saith the Lord, if the Lord hath not saith, right? There's great danger in these things. And listen, how about you? Like I've read my Bible and the Bible says a lot of things about false prophets, none of them are good. And so we need to be really, really careful if we're going to invoke the name of God and speak on authority, of his authority. And, and, and the, the trouble is when somebody uses the language of God told me, who's supposed to disagree with that? But like you, you've now said, like you've heard from the highest authority and that, that really is that, like that's someone who's, who's really gonna struggle to receive any type of pushback because they're utterly convinced that their direct line is with God. They rely on their dreams. It, it goes on to say that they defile the flesh meaning that they indulge in sexual immorality. Uh, this is, has been a hallmark of false teaching at every generation of the church. There have always been those within the church who try to distort the word of God in order to justify sexual sin. Jude says they reject authority. Again, their claim is God told me, so they don't see themselves as subject to any human authority. These are all marks of false teachers today. They claim a line of understanding that everybody else has missed. So they rely on their feelings. They rely on their emotions. They rely on their personal experiences or the experiences of others. They make the Bible say what they want it to say in order to justify sexual sin. And then they cancel anyone who dares to disagree with them. Nothing has changed in 2000 years. Another example that Jude gives here, again, this is dense, but just hang with me. It's of the archangel Michael disputing with Satan about the body of Moses. And so again, here, Jude is drawing from an old Jewish tradition. It taught that when Moses died, Satan was actually contending for his body. And, um, and, and so there, there's a number of speculations of, of what it is Satan wanted to do this for um, it could have been uh, that he wanted to tempt God's people into idolatry. We know that Israel was prone to idolatry while they were in the wilderness. 
And, and, but this, this tradition in particular taught uh, that the reason why Satan wanted Moses' body because uh, Satan was once guilty, or excuse me, Moses was once guilty of, of murder. If you remember from the Exodus story, uh, he sees the Egyptian who strikes the Hebrew slave and Satan apparently claims because he's a murderer, he belongs to me. And so Michael disputes him with this, but Michael rebukes Satan. Jude 9, Jude 9 uh, quotes Zechariah 3, 2, where the Lord rebukes Satan and Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. Now, now pay attention to this. This is the contrast between Michael, the chief angel of Israel, and Satan, who is a fallen angel. False prophets do not hesitate to blaspheme holy things. They don't hesitate to to speak evil of that which is heavenly and divine and angelic. And yet here is Michael, the chief archangel, in, he's interacting with Satan, like who, if, if anybody is worthy of rebuke, if anybody is worthy of pushback, if anybody is worthy of, of being insulted, it's Satan. And yet even Michael, knowing the full wickedness of Satan, he leaves the rebuke in the hands of the Lord. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Don't miss this. This is why you need the picture of Jesus as judge. When you know that Jesus is judge, even in the face of profound wickedness and injustice and evil, you can leave ultimate judgment in his hands. If you know that Jesus is the judge, you will be free from the need to respond in anger and hate and with insults. Because the just judge is not going to allow sin to go unpunished. You know that it's in his hands. I know sometimes, you know, someone has wronged us Someone commits an injustice against us. Somebody has done something that's caused us harm and we feel so justified in retaliating against them. They deserve this. They've, they've brought this upon themselves. I'm fully justified saying these things, venting these frustrations, slandering their character. Like we just feel so justified in these moments. And, and, and sometimes these things are done to us and we're like, nobody's holding them accountable. They're just getting away with this. Friends, nobody gets away with sin. Because Jesus is a just judge, sin never goes unpunished. We can know that every injustice that's ever committed against us or against others that makes us angry, that grieves us, it will be perfectly dealt with in the hands of our Savior. He is the just judge. He's not going to allow sin to go unpunished. But that's the warning for us. It means if he judged pride then, he's going to judge it now. If he judged sexual immorality then, he's going to judge it now. If he judged prophetic lies, perversion of truth then, he's going to judge it now. Sin has not changed and he hasn't changed. So going on, Jude gives more characteristics. He says they blaspheme what they don't understand. Like unreasoning animals, they're bound to their own natural sinful instincts. And then he gives three more Old Testament examples. Hang with me, we're about to power through the rest of this. He says they walked in the way of Cain. Now, story of Cain is that Cain was jealous of his brother Abel. Uh, God accepted Abel's sacrifice, not Cain's. So Cain and his jealousy rises up and he kills his brother. It's the first murder. He references Balaam. And so this is recorded in the book of Numbers. He was paid a bribe to pronounce a curse on God's people. And then third, Jude mentions Korah's rebellion. This is also in the book of Numbers. Korah rejected Moses' authority. And because of this, the Lord opened up the earth and buried them alive. And so Jude likens all of these examples to false teachers. Like Cain, false teachers are ruthlessly jealous of others to the point of wanting to destroy them. 
Like Balaam, they'll be motivated and driven by money and greed. Like Korah, they will rebel against faithful leaders who uphold God's word. And Jude warns here that God's judgment is coming for all of it. It's coming for all of it. And then he adds to his list around this section out. He says they're like hidden reefs at love feasts. But what does a hidden reef do to ships? Destroys them. They feast without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves. So they care for themselves at the expense of caring for others. They're waterless clouds swept along by winds. So they provide no rain. This is a pretty visceral illustration. They're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, and they offer no benefit. Wild waves of the sea and the foam that they cast up on the shore, Jude says, is shame. They're like wandering stars. You ever see a shooting star before? Man, it's brilliant for like a half second, right? And then it disappears. And nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. The church will always be under attack by people who meet all of these characteristics. They want money. They want attention. They want just a moment of fame. They want false interpretations of scripture so they can comfortably justify their own sins and encourage other people to live comfortably in their sins. They have the appearance of beauty and strength and brilliance, but in the end, they bring only destruction. Is everybody still with me? Hanging in there? Some glazed over faces. I get it. That's dense. All right, so let, let, let me illustrate this a little bit. Uh, we moved into a house about 18 months ago. And uh, as our house was being built, there's about this uh, 50, 60 foot water oak off the back corner of our house, close to where mine and Emily's bedroom is. And, and so it was really, really close to the house. I remember talking to our builder and being like, hey man, could y'all go ahead and take those, that thing down? I'm worried, you know, it probably got messed up during construction. And he's like, no, that one's got to stay. You know, we, we, we'd have to get a permit to remove it. It's going to take too long. And we'd have to plant something else anyway. He goes, but we didn't drive any heavy equipment over that nothing was near it. That tree is going to be fine. And I was like, I don't know. And, and so fast forward 18 months, uh, the tree's dead, right? And, um, and, and so this is what I was worried was going to happen. And, and I'm no arborist, but um, you know, one morning, it was about six months ago, uh, we thought, okay, maybe the tree will be okay. It looks healthy. It looks strong. Maybe it wasn't affected by the construction. But I go outside uh, several months ago, and I noticed the dreaded black spot on the tree. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's oozing sap out of the side. And I'm just like, oh, no. And at first, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ignoring it. You know, we'd had a woodpecker that was, that was on that tree a little bit. And there's lots of squirrels up and down. It's like, ah, okay, maybe just that. Or, you know, maybe, maybe the boys were just, you know, hammering a nail on the side of it or something. And, and so I was just kind of wishing and hoping, okay, maybe there's, there's no issue here. But um, I don't know about you, but I am uh, walk around the yard with my coffee in my PJs years old every morning to inspect my yard and um, I've been that age for, for about a decade now. My yard's very important to me. And so, so one morning, though, uh, not long after this, I, noted, I noticed that it wasn't just sap oozing. Now, now there was a spot that was actually starting to rot. And it wasn't very big, just, just a couple of inches. Like, it wasn't very big, but I noticed some dead wood. And I'm like, oh, man. Well, maybe it's going to be okay. You know, the, 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 it's a, uh, the, the leaves had fallen and the new leaves had come up and the rest of the tree, I'm feeling around. I'm like, ah, it seems, seems pretty, pretty solid. You know, I think we're going to be good here. But then a couple weeks later, that spot's doubled. And then not long after that's tripled. And all of a sudden, it's this three-foot spot, only about three feet off the ground. So it's at the base of the tree that's pretty quickly starting to rot to the core. So guess what's happening a week from tomorrow? The tree's coming down. Now, there's, there's still this temptation because tree removal is expensive. Amen? It's not fun. Never want to do this. And, and so there's still this temptation. You're like, you know, but most of the tree looks pretty solid. 
and the leaves came in and, and you know, it doesn't seem like we're any sort of significant danger here, but guys, but we know what's gonna happen here. We're getting into hurricane seas, we're getting into heavy storms. If I don't take that tree down, the day's gonna come that it falls and crushes my house. And this is what Jude warns about from the beginning of the letter is, is man, false teaching within the church, it just, it just starts as this tiny little bit of rot. And, and you, you just think, you, you try to just, oh, I, think, I think it's okay. I don't think it's gonna be that big of a deal. I think we can live through this. Look at the shade it still provides. Look at the leaves that are still growing. I think it's still a pretty solid tree. Like it's, it's a 98% good tree, right? And like that, that's how we start to convince ourselves. That's what Jude warns of at the beginning of the letter is, is false teaching, man, it just creeps in. It creeps in and the rot is allowed to fester and all of a sudden it's doubled and then it's tripled. And then one day the tree just comes crashing down and it causes harm. And this is a fitting illustration from Jude about trees being twice dead and uprooted because for decades in the American church, the rot has been allowed to exist unchecked. And now we're facing a reckoning as a generation of believers. Now, I'm gonna say some things here for the next couple minutes and I'm just gonna ask you on the front end just to reserve your total judgment about what you're feeling until the very end because on the front end, I'm gonna say some stuff and half of y'all are gonna be like, amen, yes, preach it. But then I'm gonna stand on the other side and say some stuff and y'all are gonna be like, thought you were on my team. And you're gonna feel this. And so I wanna make sure that we call balls and strikes here this morning and have a balanced understanding about what we're facing. So this is what we're experiencing. This is how rot has gone unchecked in the American church for decades. So uh, in theologically liberal groups, it starts with the rejection of the authority of scripture. It always starts there. You can't trust the Bible. It's outdated, has no relevance for today. It's not been accurately interpreted. All of these, by, by the way, have been dealt with easily by, by, by very brilliant people. And so it always starts with the rejection of the authority of scripture, which leads to a reimagining and a redefinition of truth. And particularly what Jude addresses is it's led to the widespread acceptance of sexual activity that goes outside of the boundaries of scripture. And so that's what's happening on one side. But then on the other hand, you get more conservative groups who held tightly to the authority of scripture. We've held tightly to biblical definitions We've, we've rightly said, hey, man and woman have been made in the image of God. God has ordained marriage to be a covenant between a man and a woman. Sex is a gift that's reserved for that marriage covenant. We've held tightly onto those definitions. We've held tightly onto truth, but oftentimes at the exact same time, we're covering up and ignoring sexual abuse. Or even, even more than this, we, we are condemning of certain forms of sexual sin, we're, we're condemning of homosexuality. We're condemning of, of all other perversions of sexual sin. We're condemning of these things while not dealing honestly with other sins in the church like pornography use, like divorce that goes outside of the boundaries of God's word. There are biblical parameters for this, but we go outside those parameters sometimes. So instead of dealing honestly with these things, we've magnified the sins of others so that now we've got a group that's looking at us going, that's hypocrisy. How are you gonna speak out against this when you were silent for all these years about this? And like, this is a legitimate pushback. This is a legitimate pushback. And so what it's left us with is this cultural climate where we have an absolute stalemate and nothing is happening. Nothing's happening. And so we've got a group that's holding on tightly to the truth, but because of how we have failed to honestly address other forms of sin, everybody else is like, listen, we don't wanna hear your truth because you're walking in hypocrisy. But then on the other side, you've got some, it's like, because of your hypocrisy, we should be able to justify all these other sins. And this is not to be the case. 
Church, we, we cannot get into these self-righteous games of thinking that our sins are better or worse than the other side. It's all wicked in the eyes of God. That The solution to this is not to redefine sex. The solution to this is not to ignore sexual abuse. The solution to all of it across the board is to fall on our knees in repentance before God and make no excuse. We have to be able to do these things. It is so hypocritical that we can be vocal against one form of sin while we ignore another. It's so hypocritical. What was happening a lot of times for decades as, as we ignored instances of sexual abuse is, is you had brothers and sisters in Christ who struggled with same-sex attraction, who struggled with gender dysphoria, who, who recognized, they're like, hey, I know, I'm not trying to justify it. Like, I know this isn't what God wants. I know that's not what's revealed as world, but I'm struggling with this. And the moment they got honest about it, the church said, we have no place for you and pushed them to the outside. And so now today their objection is, how dare you speak out against this when you didn't deal with abuse? The solution is not to emphasize one above the other. It's not to ignore one or the other. The solution is to recognize it is all sin before God. And his judgment's coming on these things. His judgment is coming against those who tamper with his word and try to redefine truth. But his judgment is also coming against the professing Christian who refused to show grace and mercy and compassion to sinners. We cannot be guilty. We cannot be guilty of emphasizing the sins of others while we ignore our own. So this is what that means for us. Jesus is the savior, but he's also the judge. We have to be able to say in truth, God has created us male and female in his image to bring him glory. He has ordained marriage to be a gospel reflecting covenant between a man and a woman. He has reserved all sexual activity to be for that man and woman in the confines of the marriage bed. Church, we cannot move on these things. God's word is clear on these things. But on the other side, we have to be able to completely own that the church has utterly failed victims of sexual abuse for decades. We have failed to love brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with gender dysphoria. We have failed to love those who struggle with same-sex attraction. We have put them in their own unique category of sinner, and we have failed to be present with them in their struggle. You know, I've learned, I've been serving the local church my entire adult life. I started my first internship when I was 16, so next year will be 20 years for me. And what I've learned, I've just grown up around pastors, grown up around the church. Every single church has a truth crowd, and every single church has a grace crowd. So, so man, there, there are weeks I'll get up and I'll preach a message that's like heavy in truth. And there's half the room going, man, that was not loving, gracious, and compassionate enough. And, and so the very next week I'll get up and I'll preach love, grace, and compassion. And the other side of the room's like, Taylor's gone soft, starting to lose it. And, and just so I can share with you transparently, if I hear of the same sermon, that was too heavy and that was too light, I go, good, okay, Amen. Because we're called to be people who hold truth and grace and, and intention. And this is what I found about the truth crowd and, and the grace crowd. Instead of celebrating that we have other brothers and sisters in Christ who complement our strengths, we tend to demonize each other and self-righteously think everybody else should just be like us. So all the truth people over here are like, these guys are soft. They need to be more firm. They gotta stand firm. We gotta be bold. We can't give up ground. We gotta fight. We gotta contend. yes. And so, so they don't really see a place for the people who are gracious and compassionate. But on the other side is, is believe it or not, you know, you can be a grace Pharisee. You, you can be a grace Pharisee. You can look at your own life and be like, those people should be as loving, gracious, and compassionate as I am. 
And it's all self-righteousness before God. Instead of competing with one another, no, we should complement each other. So again, if you're on the truth side, if you're, that, that's, that's me. That probably doesn't shock you to hear that, by the way. Like I'm, I land more on, on the truth side of that paradigm. And so what I have to do is, man, I need other brothers and sisters who remind me, yes, truth, but we've got to speak it in love. We speak it with grace. We speak it with compassion. And if you're more on the grace side of things, what you really need are those brothers and sisters in Christ who can keep you anchored to truth. I mentioned this last week because listen, if you are that big hearted person, you're loving, you're gracious, compassionate, Satan wants you to open up your heart a little bit too wide. He wants you to start giving up truth. He wants you to start giving up ground. Church, we need each other. We need each other. If our church, if we as individual followers of Jesus in this season that we're experiencing right now in the West, if we're going to survive, we have to be two things. We have to be people of unconditional love who are willing to be friends of sinners. And we have to be people of unapologetic truth who refuse to compromise on God's word. That's why we're in the book of Jude for a few weeks. The same guy who says in the introduction, contend for the faith, fight for the faith, is the same guy who says in the conclusion, and have mercy on those who doubt. We have to be people who are capable of doing both. The same Jesus who judged in the past is the same Jesus who judges today. The same sins that he judged in the past are the same sins he judges today. And let's finish up this passage in verses 14 through 16. Jude says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Same Jesus who judged in the past is the same Jesus who judges today. The same sins he judged in the past are the same sins he judges today. And third, the same warning he gave in the past is the same warning he gives today. Uh, just very quickly here, uh, we're gonna come back to some of this next week. Here Jude cites another Jewish text and that text is the book of Enoch. And scripture tells, uh, tells us that Enoch, it's one of those mysteries of scripture. Book of Genesis just says that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. That's all we know about Enoch is like he apparently faithfully walked with God and then one day the Lord just took him. That's a pretty good way to go out, right? I'm like, can I sign up for that, for that one? Like, can we... And so that's what we know about Enoch, but there was also, there was a Jewish text uh, called the book of Enoch. And, uh, and it was widely accepted among the Jewish community that he had prophesied about the coming judgment. And so that's, what's, that's what Jude is, is unpacking here. Several times, uh, Josiah noted this earlier, we see different forms of the word ungodly. He says, the Lord will return to convict them, the ungodly of their deeds. Jude says they'll be, con uh, they'll be condemned for the harsh things that they've spoken against the Lord. So like Israel in the wilderness, they'll be convicted of their grumbling. He calls them malcontents. This is a really interesting word. What that word expresses, a malcontent is someone who chooses a foolish lifestyle and then constantly complains about how hard their life is. And that's what Jude is rebuking here. It's the person who is, man, they're experiencing the natural consequences of their own foolish decisions and yet, instead of taking any responsibility, constantly plays the victim about how hard their life is, even though they're facing the consequences of their own choices. That's what these false teachers are like. He calls them loud mouth boasters. Does anybody need an explanation of, of that one? They show favoritism to gain an advantage. 
So they're willing to give up ground on truth as long as they're still getting a paycheck. The characteristics have not changed. It has not changed. It has not changed. The same tactics that the enemy has been using in the first, since the first century church, the, the same tactics that he keeps using today. This is why this letter is so important to us because scripture shows us the signs. We can recognize the rot and we can do something about it before the tree falls on the house. And that's what we're encouraged to do here because the Lord's judgment is coming for all of it. He is our savior, but we also have to recognize him as our judge. Now, I'm going to start to close this morning. Today's Mother's Day. And, you know, when we, uh, our, our approach as a church, we typically, uh, generally, most of the time, we're preaching through a book of the Bible or a section of the Bible. So we don't really lay out the text based on, like, cultural holidays. We always want to acknowledge moms, celebrate moms. Um, but, 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 you know, ultimately, we're just, we're just going to pick up where we left off the, the week but before. But, but honestly, for the first time ever uh, on Mother's Day, like, I really wrestled with this tension this week where I'm just like, Lord, do I, I really have to preach about judgment on Mother's Day? Like, like, can I do something different? You know, should I go, should I go one off here? And, and so again, we don't want to impose anything on the text, but I, I, I do believe this text still speaks something so powerful to mothers in particular this morning. This past Friday, I got just on my Facebook page, I just threw out a question. I said, moms, uh, besides physical safety, because I think that's a given, most parents, we, pay, we pray for our children's physical safety. So besides physical safety, what are some specific ways that you pray for your kids? And I was hoping maybe I'd get seven or eight responses. And man, there's, there's dozens, that there's dozens. If we're friends on Facebook, and I, I just encourage you, just go find that post. It was so encouraging to read how mothers are praying for their children. And so, so you, you had parents, who mothers who are praying on both sides of this paradigm. You, you, you had mothers who are praying on the side of, of truth, and you had mothers who are praying on the side of grace. So mothers, this is my encouragement to you today. Pray for your kids to be anchored in the truth. This is what some of those responses were. Moms, are, you're praying for their salvation. You're praying that their hearts would be anchored to the word of God, that they would be led away from temptation, that they would be delivered from evil, that the Lord would raise your kids up as righteous and holy in this generation that they would be formidable weapons in the hands of God and they would cling to his truth, that they wouldn't drag their feet on truth and be anchored to his word. And on the other side, you had moms that were praying, I want my kids to see people the way God sees them. I want them to have hearts of compassion. I want them to look out for those who have been hurt by the church. I want them to look out for those who need a friend, who are struggling with, with their sin. And so, so moms, what better thing could you pray for your kids today than to pray, Lord, keep them in your word. Keep them in your word. Help them to contend for the faith. Keep them grounded in the gospel. Keep them grounded in truth. Don't let them give anything up. Don't let them compromise anything. Don't let them give up any ground. Keep them away from sin. Fill them with the power of your Holy Spirit. Let them walk in your strength and fulfill this great commission to the ends of the earth. Set them apart as holy and righteous instruments in your hands. And as you pray those things to also pray, and Lord, help them to see sinners the way you see sinners. Help them to not forget who they were before you saved them and you claimed them as your own. Break their hearts for the things that break yours. Help them to be friends to sinners because Jesus was a friend to sinners. Church, we gotta be people of unconditional love and we gotta be people of unapologetic truth.
The church of Jesus Christ is not an either or, it's a both and, because yes, Jesus is the loving savior, but he's also the just judge. And we cannot pick the Jesus that we want to worship. We have to worship him for who he is. So as we close this morning, I wanna give us just four very, very simple challenges. And these will be good uh, for you to discuss. We've already looked at some of these, at least in uh, some capacity, but just very quickly here as we wrap up this morning, we'll give us four very simple challenges in light of this text today. First challenge for all of us, worship the whole Jesus. Worship the whole Jesus. Worship him for who he actually is, who scripture reveals him to be, and not for who you want him to be or think he is or feel that he should be. We have to worship Jesus for who he is. We worship Jesus as our savior, but we also worship Jesus as our judge. Second challenge this morning, guard against apostasy. We looked at this word last week. Apostasy is when we drift from the truth of God's word in either our teaching or our living. And so we have to guard what we teach. And understand that's not just my responsibility as a pastor. Throughout scripture, God does not just judge false teachers. The book of Galatians shows us that God's judgment will also fall on the congregations that tolerated false teachers. This is a holistic responsibility in the whole body. So we guard against apostasy in our teaching, but also in our living. We can't be guilty of drifting away from sound doctrine in the way that we live our lives. Third, deal decisively with sin. Deal decisively with sin. Do not minimize your sins and maximize everybody else's sins. The just judge will leave no sin unpunished. Let's not emphasize some sins at the expense of of others. Yes, some sins are obviously gonna have more consequences if we commit them. Let's not make the mistake of believing that we are less guilty before God than other sinners because we are all in need of his salvation. So deal decisively. His judgment's coming against sin and he offers the invitation. As the just judge, you can be acquitted from your sins through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance. And so forth, what flows from that is to escape the coming judgment. I listened to this great interview uh, with Dane Ortland just a couple weeks ago. He was being interviewed on the subject of hell. And the guy interviewing him asked him this question. He said, when you think of hell, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's the first word that comes to your mind when you think of hell? And this was his response. He said, avoidable. That's really good news. It's avoidable. The just judge pronounces the consequence for sin, but as the loving savior, he is extending the invitation to you today. Turn from your sin. Look on him and believe. He is the savior who will deliver you. He will keep you from the beginning. He will keep keeping you until the end. So fathers, we we close this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the picture of your son, Jesus, who is both our savior and our judge. And so, Father, help us to see him for who he is. Even as we deal honestly with the severity of sin, help us to not lose sight of the Savior who can save us and rescue us from sin. Father, help us to see those who struggle as you see them. Keep us anchored in your truth, but give us big hearts to stand with weary sinners. And so fathers, we come to the table this morning for communion as we are reminded of the weight of sin, of what it cost for you to save us. We come to you today confessing our sins, repenting and rejoicing in the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. 
That's what we remember. So we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the mothers who have kept us anchored in your word. Thank you for the mothers who are pleading for their children today. We rejoice in every good gift that you've given us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, greatest gift of all. So be honored now in all that we say and do. We ask this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen.